friends and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today at the bottom of the hour, we'll have Dr. Greg Popchak. He is a Catholic psychologist and co-host of More to Life on EWTN Radio. I'll be talking to him about how to help our children through this continued COVID experience that for some of them is just has been too long and for the little ones, as long as they can remember. But now we are delighted to have a good friend with us, Mary McCluskey. She heads Project Rachel for the U.S. Bishops Conference. She has a lot to tell us about recovering from abortion and how Project Rachel Ministry does so much good. Welcome to the show, Mary. Thank you so much for having me, Gracie. It's wonderful to be here. Oh, well, you do us a great honor because we love to hear about your project. We love we love Project Rachel. Can you please tell us what Project Rachel is and, and what you hope to accomplish with this beautiful ministry? Yeah, so Project Rachel Ministry is the diocese based abortion healing ministry of the Catholic Church in the United States. So, and that's important that it's part of the church. It's very much woven into the diocese. And it looks a little bit different from diocese to diocese, but basically it's going to offer a confidential response for anybody who the diocese, you can call the number that dioceses make available in parishes and in various ways in bulletin ads, call the number and talk to somebody confidentially who who understands, who has experience in talking to people who have suffered from an abortion and can offer help. So basically the ministry offers um, what we call an integrated approach to healing, which is spiritual and psychological help. So the wound of abortion is, uh, the, the approach of the ministry is that abortion has sort of three, three aspects to the wound sin, grief, and trauma. So basically, the the ministry addresses all three of those. So spiritual help and psychological help. Some people, so you might be referred to a priest, for example, some people haven't, you know, this, this abortion happened 20 or 30 years ago. And so the ministry can direct them to a priest who is particularly gifted and experienced in hearing the confessions of somebody who is suffering from abortion and be very compassionate and, and sensitive to that particular wound and sin. Or they maybe that somebody is looking for a therapist and they want to start there. Or there are other services, healing opportunities that are a lot of dioceses offer, such as support groups or retreats. So it's really kind of meeting the person where they're at and beginning to offer that healing and that encounter with Christ that, that really only the Catholic Church offers. Give us a little background history on Project Rachel. When did Project Rachel begin? Where did it begin? How did it take off? In a very real sense, I mean, I like to think of it as when Jesus, you know, when Jesus's ministry began, right? When people first encountered Jesus, the healer, the divine physician, right? 
So informally, one could say that Jesus's healing of our sins really began 2,000 years ago, right? But I know what you're asking in a, in a formal <laughs> sense, right? Project Rachel ministry began in an archdiocese in Milwaukee, the Archdiocese of Milwaukee in 1984. And from there, it spread to other dioceses. And then in 2005, the USCCB began formally to take over the, the trademark and all of that. So it's really, um, gosh, I'm going to do the math here, 37, 38 years old. But before that, even back in 1975, the bishops as a body in the Pastoral Plan for Pro-Life Activities, they issued this document, basically began to call out all different programs and institutions and associations, all people of the church in a nationwide response to what they knew would be the damage done to our nation, our families, our institutions, our society by unrestricted legalized abortion. So it kind of the really be, the call for this really began in 1975. And so over the years, as more and more women came to confession and talked about their hurt and their pain to priests, the church responded. And so over the years, as the, the need and the call has grown, you know, dioceses have responded and increasingly grown and developed this ministry. Abortion has touched very many lives in our country. Maybe, I mean, I, th I would think a majority of people have been touched by abortion, whether having had one, having had someone they love have one, maybe be the father of a baby who was aborted. There's a lot of hurt out there. What makes the Catholic Church the, the premier place? where that hurt can be healed. Thank you for making that important point because I that's I always try to drive that home that statistically speaking I think everybody if either directly has been either had an abortion themselves or been in some way involved in one or know somebody who's had one the people it's the statistic at least that we have available is that 24% of catholic women will share that identify 24% of women who've had abortions identify as Catholic. So Catholic women who are suffering are in the pews, active in their parishes. Like we, we know this, we, they're out there and suffering. And so what makes the Project Rachel ministry the most helpful response for people who are suffering is that we offer this direct conduit to Jesus himself, the divine physician. I mean, we have the sacraments. We have the sacrament of reconciliation, number one, where the priest himself is you know, in persona Christi. You are, you are encountering Jesus. But also just, I mean, one of the blessings of this job is I get to meet people who are Catholics and non-Catholics as well, but the church has so many wonderful resources and people who are dedicated and get and understand this holistic approach, right? The Catholic approach to the human person is beautiful. We understand that integration of body and soul, mind and spirit. And we understand that the, the sin, yes, sin, because we have to address that aspect of sin, right? And But also the grief and the trauma. The Lord himself is the one who will heal all of that, but he's going to use, he's going to work through different means. And it's the graces. Like we have the grace through the sacraments. Um, we have that direct line to Jesus himself. And that that's, those are the things that make the Catholic approach really it, right? The best approach, mm -hmm. the most helpful. My experience with post-abortive women tallies exactly with what you're saying. And my experience has been that what a woman suffers after she's had an abortion, and as you say, it might be the week after, or it could be 20 years later, she suffers a, a deep um, sense of faith.
failure, thinking that she has failed at the at the at the most primary task of a woman, which is to protect her offspring. And she doesn't trust herself anymore. And she feels that she's not worthy, that there's an unworthiness about her that nothing can fix. Now, several women have expressed this to me, and it and it makes so much sense to me that you would look at yourself and say, "Oh, well, I I failed at this one task that I should have been able to manage." You know that that is so deep in my heart, the, my motherhood. How could I fail at that? I love what you say about Jesus being the divine physician because you can go around psychologically trying to fix this, but in the end, it's knowing that you're a daughter of God and someone who can be forgiven and utterly washed clean again by the grace of God that brings the heart back to life, I think. That's such an important point, and I think you touched on something that is not only important to mention in the context of for women and abortion healing, but just for women generally. And I think for for men too, I think all all people do this, but we tend to view ourselves through the, the lens of what I do and what I can accomplish makes me valuable. Or we look at ourselves through the lens of our failures and, and God like wants, God loves us for who we are just for existing. And that is a very hard concept to Mm -hmm. grasp Mm -hmm. and accept, but that's our challenge. Challenge here, and you hit it nail on the head, right? We are sons and daughters of God, and no matter our failures or our accomplishments, like we are loved by God, and it, it, it's hard to accept that. And and part of the goal, you know, overall, I would say the whole goal of of Project Rachel Ministry is is to bring help accompany people to the point where they do, no longer identify with the abortion, or they no longer identify as I'm the mother of an aborted child. In other words, their quote unquote failure in, in, in this scenario presenting, but as whole, I have integrated the abortion into my life, into my past, into my reality. Like I am a mother, but my child is, you know, with the Lord, mm-hmm. I have entrusted my deceased child to the Lord with hope you know, of of being in heaven and hopefully to see them one day again. But I identify as a son or daughter of God rather than with my past sins or failures. Mm -hmm. Oh, how beautiful. And that's so much healthier than uh, another way of doing it, which I've also seen in women who are secular or atheists who say they're proud of their abortion. You know, oh, I had an abortion. It was the right decision at the time. Yeah, sure. There's parts of me that regrets it, but I'm going to be very proud of the fact that, or maybe proud's a strong word, but I'm going to be out outwardly uh, conscious of it and talk about it because it's, you know, it's something I can forgive myself for. Um, but I think that's missing a whole element of renewal that is offered by Project Rachel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think sometimes that's a way of externally trying to justify it to themselves and justify mm-hmm. it to others. And sometimes, I mean, I, I can't guess it's an individual situation, but sometimes it's, you know, you see sometimes pro-abortion women out there who seem very angry. And they're yes, very, yes. They seem very filled with pain. And, and sometimes I wonder if there's an abortion in their own past and they're, you know, they're, they're just, they just seem very filled with pain and anger anger and sometimes that can be one of the signs that somebody is is just yeah filled with repressing and denying at a very deep deep levels that shame or guilt for their abortion i mean objectively we know 
Mm-hmm. We know it to be true that mm-hmm. what they have done is unnatural wrong. And that's 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 something that their the human body, their mind, their soul is not, you know, they're not meant to deal with, you know. And, and how liberating it is it, how liberating it is when a woman who has been in that state of anger and, and denial and, and resentment makes the switch over to forgiveness, to peace, to, to reclaiming her place as a, as a beloved daughter of God that she never lost, but maybe she lost in her own head. And then becomes a pro-life advocate or a helper or someone who works in Project Rachel, someone who helps other women make that transition. Yeah, and it is, you know, we we don't, um, it's certainly not something becoming a pro-life advocate or witnessing or sharing that story. That's not something that is required or expected of people who come to Project Rachel ministry. But, you know, John Paul II uh, saint john paul ii excuse me um give him his his due you know as a saint but he wrote a lovely um paragraph 99 in the gospel of life back in 1995 directly to women who'd had abortions and he talks about that he says that they can in a very re- real way be the most eloquent defenders of life but mm-hmm. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't say that they have to be out there advocating whatever. He he just says that they can they can be eloquent defenders, but that can be that can be in a myriad of ways. You know, that can be one-on-one conversations or, you know, at being a, a mother or a friend and just sharing you know, witnessing to the the value of each life born and unborn in conversations one-on-one with people. It doesn't mean that you, in fact, some people I think are, well, we know that some people can be drawn to be out there advocating before they're ready. And that's something that, oh, that, yeah, we're, sure. that we're aware of, you know, that that there is naturally this desire to want to help people and speak out and say, you know, prevent others from going through the pain that, that they have done. But, but it's something to be very careful about and aware of because it is such a, a difficult, painful um, reality to talk about, you know, the, but um, to spread that hope is also an amazing gift. And some women are called to do that. Some women are called to share their healing testimony with others. And it's such a beautiful, uh, beautiful thing when they can, when can do that, share about how God has, has worked in their life and healed them. Mary, I want you to tell us about other people that go to Project Rachel beside moms, but I want to uh, tell you a story about my, I, my sister. I just referred her to Project Rachel a few weeks ago. And I don't think she'd mind me sharing this story. She said to me in a casual conversation, we were talking about children going off to college, that some of our children are in those ages, my sisters and mine. <clears throat> and she said, you know, one of the things I worry about is something that happened to me when I went to college. She said, I was like you, she and I were protected Catholic schoolgirls within a very traditional family. And she went to college, um, actually in town, but she went to a dorm um, just down, you know, 30 minutes from home. And she said that her roommate was very promiscuous. And she was shocked by that. And, and then the roommate asked her to drive her to have an abortion at one point. Mm-hmm. And she did so. And she told me, this is many, she's my sister's 52. She said to me, it's been upset. It's been an upsetting thing in my life for all those years. Gracie, mm-hmm. she said. Mm-hmm. She says, I still wonder what in the world I was thinking when I got in that car. What was I mm-hmm. thinking as I waited in the waiting room? And how did I not stop her? And how am I complicit in the abortion? She goes, I think I was a silly girl and just made a silly mistake. She goes, but I can't shake it off. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's hard. I mean, it's it's so wonderful that she was able to share that with you. And she's finally like, 
talking about that. And I mean, it's, I hope that she, it's good that you refer to project Rachel because you make a great point that project Rachel is, is, is for anybody who's been in either had an abortion or involved in any way. And if so, anybody, of course you can, you can talk to a priest about, you know, involvement in any to, you know, to what degree you might have cooperated with an evil or a sin or, you know, you can, that's always, um, you know, an option for people. But um, the benefit of Project Rachel is that, um, you know, these priests are going to be particularly, um, they're going to be prepared to, you know, in, in, in different ways and particularly experienced. Um, you know, all priests, of course, are prepared to handle um, you know, confession and to talk about, you know, be prepared for spiritual direction and pastoral counseling. But so I really, um, yeah, I hope that she's, I, I trust that she'll, she'll be helped and she can resolve this, you know, have, have hope and that she can, um, you know, get resolve this mm -hmm. in her soul. Yeah, you know, one thing this. that conversation was so illuminating to me because we tend to concentrate on the immediate actors, right, of the in the in the abortion process, but there's so many people who are at one remove, two removes, four removes who are deeply impacted um by abortion. Yes, and you know, it also you know, we, we I do this work of, of abortion healing, but I think it's also important to point out that, you know, in, in this example, the power, uh, um, the influence that the father of the child, the friend, the, the, the grandmother of the child, or, you know, the mother of the daughter or that is, um, you know, facing an, a difficult pregnancy, like those people can talk to them, can listen, can offer their help and support to prevent the abortion um, from happening and, and be there and listen. And, you know, so it's, it's, it's important, yes, to, to say, you know, to heal and to bring that message of hope and healing after abortion. But, you know, it's, it's also important to say that, um, you know, in assistance, for example, you know, that, the power of one voice to say, wait a minute, have, have you thought about this? You know, to, to intervene and say, is this really what you want deep down and I can help you and to listen to them. Um, but, but yeah, the, you know, the doctors who perform the abortions, the abortion facility workers, the receptionist, I mean, there's a, you know, there's a great group out there. And then there were none who helps um, abortion facility workers leave the industry. And then they actually go on healing retreats afterwards to, to deal with, right, their involvement in that industry and to heal from that. I mean, that's, you know, they, they need to forgive themselves for their participation in those abortions. Um, but the power of God to, to allow healing and conversion in a heart such as that i mean that's 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 what is the glory the 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 amazing story here is that no sin is beyond god's forgiveness and love there's a woman dorothy day who is has a, a strong cause for beatification mm -hmm. uh, in her favor and she, dorothy day had an abortion Mm -hmm. And uh, she writes about it very movingly. I'm I'm excited uh, about her becoming a blessed or a saint in that sense because it, how wonderful to think that that a woman 
could be, you know, canonized after having experienced that and and how beautiful for all women and men who suffer after abortion. Yes, yes, women and men as well. You know, I yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to more learning more about Dorothy Day. I've I've looked for the the passage where she talks about it and, and not that, you know, not that I want to pry into the details of that, but I want to read more about her her powerful conversion story and and her healing and how God, you know, transformed her heart and converted her and and how she became a saint and lived out that that virtuous life you know that's that's a beautiful story and thank you for bringing up men too because that is so um that is a, a excellent point that needs a that word needs to spread more and more which is that men for a lot of t- a long time have been shoved to the side in this issue right oh well it, it's not their body and so they they have no say well yes but that's they're the father they're the father of that child and in a lot of cases they're left how they feel powerless in the decision or they're told they don't have a say because it is not quote-unquote their body and and that can be and that that's a very difficult um, situation sometimes for them to be in sometimes they are actually the ones who are pushing or coercing even in some cases the abortion or um, you know, I think that must be one of the most painful things in the world. If of a man wants his little baby, and and a, and the mother of the baby right. destroys the baby. I mean, what a terrible pain! Um, yeah, I, I can't well, imagine that situation. And then, in some cases, the man doesn't even know when he finds out later. You know, she mm-hmm. tells him later, and that that would be you know. I can't imagine the anger, the frustration, the pain, you know, I didn't know I couldn't have, you know, I, if I had known I could have done something. And well, legal, for, legal abortion, that's one of the great horrors that legal abortion has perpetrated is the separation of men from the children they engender. Uh, as, right. as as their responsibility, as their as something that they can safeguard, someone they can safeguard because that child belongs to them, and very uh, that child very much belongs to them. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's. Oh, I mean, we could. Yeah, I could talk about the destruction of legalized abortions, just abortion itself, you know. And of course, I think it starts way before that with contraception and with sure, you know, free, you know sexuality you know not being tied to a permanent loving union and marriage and uh, uh, just anyway it's yeah so but so the point is that that yes men men can be men are very welcome to contact project rachel for for handling all of these difficult emotions and and that and i have seen the witnesses of, of many men who have had profound healing and experienced a lot of hope from project rachel what about um what about the very the very real um quantifiable damage that abortion does to women um you know statistics like women who've had an abortion have an 81 percent higher risk of subsequent mental health problems and women who have aborted um have a higher risk of mental health problems compared a much higher risk to women who have given birth are those you know the other side of course um (laughs) laughs at those things and they they call abortion such a liberally a liberating um procedure without any negative consequences consequences for women but isn't that the kind of propaganda that that puts women in these in this position in the first place to be told constantly that there there are no bad side effects for themselves oh oh yeah i mean the the abortion proponents have you know a lot of that going on i mean there's 
there's, I don't know, some of the listeners might have read about the turnaway study in the yes. news recently. And that one, you know, I don't, I'm not an expert at statistics, the ins and outs of it. Some people, their minds work better that way. But I do know that the, the holes have been punched in the validity of that study. It was something like, you know, the amount of people that think they paid people to be in this. Basically, the study said, you know, that abortion was, well, it was no problem at all for the women that, you know, but it was like the amount of women that they finally, that dropped out of the study was, was egregiously high. And I think they paid women to take the study and just, you know, but. a selection bias. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. And so a lot of statistics and studies are politicized. um, But, you know, when when you really look at studies that are well done, for example, you know, on the hopeafterabortion.com website, there's one Priscilla Coleman did a meta analysis, which is, you know, I think it was like 28 international studies. And and that's where some of these very reliable, well done statistics come from that that demonstrate that there is a higher risk of, of mental health problems, um, substance abuse and, you know, um, suicidal behavior, depression, you know, from women who have had abortions as opposed to those who have not. So, you know, and, and the efforts to, to, to say, you know, shout your abortion, tell everyone about your abortion. I mean, I, it's interesting. I've been kind of following those efforts and keeping note of them. And to, I don't think they're effective because when you read deep down, if you actually pay attention, the women women who will write comments or respond to them, the things they say actually are not in line with the messaging of what the shout your abortion folks are saying. They'll say, I felt conflicted. I felt, oh, you know, I'm, I really struggled. I, so they're not, they don't, they don't match up. In fact, I was reading there, apparently they tried this 50 years ago when Roe v, there was a a Ms. Magazine article about apparently when Roe v. Wade was first going to be decided. There were a bunch of celebrities who came out and signed this letter saying, we had abortions, we had illegal abortions, we are, we are celebrating them, we are sharing, (laughs) we are telling everyone. And so this is not something new. This Mm -hmm. has been going on for decades that celebrities are coming out and sharing their abortions and saying, Saying this was empowering for me or whatever, but and it didn't work 50 years ago, and I don't think it's going to work now because because it, it doesn't resonate with real women's experiences. And what woman is going to? It's it's very difficult to go on social media or to write in articles. You know, no, this was horrible. I feel horribly depressed, and I'm using drinking every night to get to sleep. Like nobody wants to share that. Mm-hmm. Tell our listeners how they can access Project Rachel if they know if they need it or if they know someone who needs. It, or, and how they can help in their in their parish to this ministry, how they can help this ministry grow. So there's a national website for Project Rachel called hopeafterabortion.org or .com, but hopeafterabortion.org or the Spanish site is uh, esperanzapostaborto.org. Um, there's a lot of different ways, even one-on-one conversations with people, just listening and saying there is hope and healing and God loves you and, and wants, de- desperately desires for you to come to him for healing after abortion. <laughs> well, that's the message, Mary. How wonderful that you are so deeply involved in getting at, getting that out there and healing so many broken hearts in America. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for this opportunity. It's been great.
Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. We're now happy to have with us Dr. Greg Popchak. He's a Catholic psychologist and a familiar voice on EWTN Radio. He co-hosts along with his wife, Lisa, the show More to Life with Dr. Greg and Lisa Popchak. Welcome to the show, Dr. Popchak. That's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's always wonderful to have you. And you have so much so much wisdom to give us and, and so much reassurance, too, when we have you on. So we're turning to you for wisdom and reassurance today. So thank you again for making the time. These days, a lot of people have been experiencing in the last couple of months a resurgence of the COVID pandemic, stuff that we thought we had put behind us, masking for our children. For many of us, that was already in the past and now it's back. Those rolling lockdowns where someone in the family catches COVID and then three weeks later, someone else has it. And then you're always sort of in a state of separation from your normal routines and the, the people you like to see. How do you see the environment right now in the United States, re-COVID and mental health? You know, I I think, honestly, through the entire last two years, um, what we've seen is that um, everybody's emotional temperature is elevated by at least two notches. You know, so if you imagine the scale that runs from one to ten, you know, if if everybody was sort of an average of five or six, I think everyone's running a good seven or eight all the time. Oh, I I can't Um, agree more. (laughs) And so what we're seeing, you know, in the counseling practice at CatholicCounselors.com is that things that people used to just be, things that used to just be irritating for people have become crises. You know, things that were crises are becoming catastrophes. And and the more it goes on, the more true that really is. I think that you know everyone's resources are are uh, wearing down, and their capacity for resilience is where you know their bounce back ability is kind of wearing down as well. So you know we're just not able to take those kind of emotional hits as well as we're used to. And so you know I think that people are are needing more support. Uh, from each other than, than ever before. The, the other thing I guess I noticed is that, you know, the, the problem with that, though, is, you know, generally speaking, when we are going through a difficult time, the answer is to reach out to others for support. But in, in a time like this, reaching out to others is the threat in some way. Uh-huh. You know, so you end up with this very frustrating situation where our natural impulse is to reach out to other people and yet we get a lot of information that says we, it's not safe to reach out to other people. So there's this constant kind of pushing and pulling feeling inside of folks that the one thing that we want to do to feel safer and to feel normal, to feel uh, some sense of, of normalcy is, is, is a constant threat to us. And so that, that, that adds that element of increasing emotional temperature. Don't you think there's also a, a, a part of us that was ready when all this started to to hunker down and to be, you know, really careful for a while and change everything, but it was temporary. And now there's a sense of, wait, wait, maybe it's not temporary. Maybe this is the shape of my future and a kind of a struggle against that, a mental struggle against that reality. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it was, it was two weeks to flatten the curve when we yeah, started this. Right? Exactly. And, and now two years later. Um, and, you know, especially for kids, you know, there, there are kids now in third grade who have never been to school without a mask. You know, I mean, if you think about it. And, and you know, so this has been their this has been their life. You know, you have kids in, in high school who have their more than half their high school career is, is over and it's and they haven't been able to do anything that, mm-hmm. that a lot of high school. So sad. So it's been devastating for, for children's development. Just, um, you know, just how, what we know, all the things we take for granted haven't been able to happen. And so all those touchstones uh, become losses. That, that, and I don't think that people really recognize the grief 
that's there. I think, you know, we, we think the kids are resilient and they just kind of roll with it. And they do. They, the kids adapt, but they don't necessarily bounce back. And I think that, that we, have to, we have to recognize these losses of, of these normal touchstones are really things to grieve. And we have to recognize that our kids are grieving those things. And so if they're a little more on edge, or if their behavior isn't as good as it, as it normally is, or if they seem a little bit more, more emotionally charged, you know, there, there are reasons for that. Are you seeing a lot of children and young young teens and teenagers who seem to be suffering from social uh, withdrawal or uh, inability to socialize normally because of uh, the last two years? You know, it, it's it, uh, there's social anxiety. You know, I think that it's it's not so much that they're not able to interact normally. It's it's that there's there's just a lot of anxiety about it. You know, so the, the, there's a lot of fear that's holding kids back. There's a lot of sort of free-floating generalized anxiety that comes from feeling like, look, we've been doing this for so long. Why should I be so anxious all the time? Hmm. Which really doesn't recognize how awful <laughs> the quote-unquote new normal actually is. Mm-hmm. You know, but when, 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 when something becomes endemic and, and normal, we have a tendency to write it off and just and say, well, I shouldn't be upset about this. Um, but this is all really very upsetting. And, and, and I think that because we don't acknowledge that, um, there's this sort of sense that, you know, I'm always on edge and I don't know why. And I think that's true both for adult, adults and kids, except kids are even more hard put to explain that or express it than adults are, because we at least have some perspective of what it was like before. Uh, And a lot of kids really don't. You know what I'm sensing in in young people? I have two or three in in my home and they have friends. I'm sensing a lot of anger, a a kind of low-level simmering anger against the way that things are being handled. For instance, yeah. my I have a 21-year-old son who's a senior in college. He's absolutely just, he complains endlessly about his college experience. He's really angry. He tried to go to the library yesterday. He was turned away because there was some testing issue that he had missed some sort of deadline and the test hadn't come back. And this is a boy who was vaccinated and because he was asked to be vaccinated, he didn't feel that strongly. He didn't feel strongly that he needed it. He's young and healthy and he's very angry and I'm hearing that also from younger younger people who younger kids teenagers who are wearing masks tired of the mask tired of the the constant disruption in their lives oh absolutely you know i, I think that um and that's that's actually part of the grief reaction i was talking about um mm-hmm. you know when we when i when i when i say the word grief and immediately people think of the sadness you know and and, and, and depression but anger is a big part of grief oh, too. Of course. Yeah. You know, I, I'm I'm losing you know my ability to go to my graduation ceremony. I'm losing my ability to go to prom or homecoming. I'm losing the ability to go to the library, you know, and, and just study. You know, um, <laughs> these are all these are all things that 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 are, are losses. It makes me feel angry. It makes me feel sad. It makes me feel anxious. I I I I don't I can't find my footing. You know, so I think I think the the, the first step to helping our kids especially cope more effectively is, is, is acknowledging, you know, and empathizing with this. I, you know, and that sounds obvious maybe, but, but I think as parents, you know, we hate to see our kids suffering at all. So we, we just want to try to be cheerleaders. Oh, it's not so bad. It'll be okay. You're going to do, and, and you know, that's natural, but it doesn't work, you know, because when you, when you take that cheerleading approach, what people hear in the back of their heads is they just don't get it. Mm-hmm. Right? And so that makes them feel even more isolated. But if you're able to say, you know, that really does stink. You know, that really isn't fair. That really is hard. I'm so sorry that you're having to deal with that. 
you know, and, and, and you actually empathize with the feeling. And, and don't be afraid that if you empathize, they're going to get lost in it. But sort of ride yeah. that emotional wave with them and know that, that you're, you're feeling what they're feeling and, you, and, and that then they're correct to feel it. That's right. You know, and that's, you know, Pope Francis talks a lot about accompaniment. And that, that's really the biggest part of accompaniment. I love the way you put that, riding that emotional wave with them. You know, as parents, we're often afraid that our kids are going to drown in that emotional wave. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, but that actually is more likely to happen if we try to just co- to cheerlead them out of it. Uh, because then they, then they have to surf by themselves. <laughs> but if we're, if we're riding it with them, then we're able to disciple them through it, mentor them through that experience, and, and go through it with them. So they at least feel like there's somebody coming alongside for that ride. Oh, that's great advice, Dr. Popchak. I'm going to use it. I'm sure our listeners will too. I'll give you another example from my own personal life. I have another son who just turned 18 and he wasn't the most social person before COVID and his social life completely shut down and now he's finishing his senior year. He'll be finished in a couple months um, in May and he, we keep encouraging him to go, try to go out and, and see his friends and do friendly things, but he keeps turning away. Now, my question for you is, should we keep pushing him or should we be patient and let him come to this at his own pace? I, I think it's, it's sort of a, a, a mix. I mean, um, it's a little bit like fishing, right? You know, you want to keep some tension on the line, but not so much tension that the line breaks. Because mm-hmm. um, it, it's, it's going to work with kids who struggle to be more social to begin with. They're more apt to just avoid it if they can. Um, so they need the little push, but if if you're pushing too hard, then they they're going to dig in their heels on it. So it needs to be more of a supportive kind of pushing, or you know, kind of talking through what kinds of socialization feel more uh, accessible to them than others, and and really in, in, in making making that kind of a stepping stone to other opportunities to socialize. Right. So uh, success builds on success. So. It's better to give them even smaller opportunities that they can feel successful with and then build from there than it is to say, why don't you go out with that group? You know, if, or, you know, if you could have somebody over to the house, you know, as opposed to going out, whatever, but just kind of building opportunities for them to feel successful in smaller interactions than necessarily going to the big thing. But, but you know, the key is really keeping that tension in mind between keeping some, some, some tension on the line like you were fishing versus breaking the line by, by pushing too hard. What about that anxiety that we feel as parents that we, we see something going in a certain direction and we're, we, we immediately jump to sort of the end result, right? I sort of imagine him in a basement at 38 playing video games. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and my heart well, that, that, breaks. But I'm, yeah. you know, as a parent, we get invested in these horrible scenarios, right? Like we, they're the ones right. we picture at 3 a.m. Of course. You know, that's called catastrophizing, right? Um, and, and it's one of the, the categories of, of unhealthy thinking patterns that, that, that end up tripping us up. And, and I'm really, I, I think, you know, when we talk about this with our clients, we, you know, the, the devil even uses those kinds of unhealthy thinking habits to, to turn up the, the volume on that, that screaming inside of our heads that says everything's going to be awful all the time. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think that um, you want, what you want to do when you're, when you're prone to catastrophizing as every parent is. This is not just a, you know, it's not just a select group of parents. <laughs> um, it's, it's to kind of look at the thing that's in front of you. 
you know, instead of looking, instead of allowing yourself to get lost in your imagination, look at the next step in front of you. What's the, what's one small thing I could do mm. to address the problem that's in front of me right now? You know, what's one, you know, if, if he's playing video games, it would be better for him to be playing video games with, with, with other people online, right? Mm-hmm. Than by if, 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 you know, if there's an opportunity to have somebody come over, that's better than him being by himself. If that's, even if they're not necessarily doing all the things you wish they were doing, you know, you're, you're, you know, as long as they're doing appropriate things, then it's fine, you know. And, and just, you know, what's one small thing I can do to make some small improvement? I, I like to, um, you know, sort of imagine it's like um, rowing a boat. You know, you're, you're not going to get from one uh, bank of the river to the other bank in one stroke. You know, you, it, it, you row, and then you, the current kind of takes you a little further downstream than you want to go, so you row back this way, and then you, you're constantly adjusting course, but it's the next stroke where you're just figuring out, where do I need to go from here? And lo and behold, you, know, you get there. Um, so rather than catastrophizing, which is sort of Satan's way of, of making you feel powerless over the big catastrophe that's looming, you, you focus on the next small step you can take, uh, and, and you keep bringing that to God and allowing him to multiply your efforts just like he multiplied the loaves and the fish. If you're just joining us, I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm talking to Dr. Greg Popchak, who's giving me a private therapy session on the radio (laughs) (laughs) and doing me so much good. I'm sure he's doing all our listeners good, too. Doctor, you just wrote a book specifically on this this, um, this population I'm talking to you about, teens and tweens, and it's called Parenting Teens and Tweens with Grace. You wrote it with your wife, I know. Tell us about the book and, and how it could help parents like me and, and, and other parents. Sure. Well, this is, a, so, so, uh, this is actually the third edition of our classic parenting book, Parenting with Grace. And for this edition, we, we decided, uh, a lot of readers had asked us to kind of break up the book into two volumes. So we've got Parenting Your Kids with Grace, which goes from birth to age 10, and then Parenting Your Teens and Tweens with Grace, which goes from 11 to 18. Uh, and, and what the book really looks at is it, it's a practical look at how what we call discipleship parenting, which is, more, you know, rather than just sort of seeing parenting as a series of techniques that we use on kids to make them behave in certain ways, we're talking about how do you create the kind of discipleship or mentoring relationship with your child at, at all the different ages and stages to, to help them want to learn how to be a godly Christian adult. You know, so, so through the book, we really talk about cultivating that kind of relationship that makes our kids open to our guidance, that makes them want to seek our advice, that, that, wants, to let, that wants to let them, uh, let them uh, make us uh, mentor them, as opposed to it being a constant battle. Um, you know, how do you break through that, that resistance and kind of create that kind of uh, back-and-forth relationship that, that, that allows you to trust your children and your children to trust you in return? Because you know, what we find is, is that, that, especially for Christian parents these days, it's, it's not enough to parent like we, ever, like, we, like we always did. Because historically, the culture at least basically supported, you know, the Christian values. That is mm-hmm. absolutely not the case anymore. Um, and so, you know, where we, where we could kind of maybe as parents sort of cut some corners and just focus on techniques and maintaining, you know, basic behavior and, and trust that, well, they'll pick it up eventually um, some way. We can't do that anymore. We have to have a different kind of relationship with our kids that makes them want to turn more to us than to the culture. And so this, this, this book takes this discipleship discipline approach, discipleship parenting approach, which fosters that sort of relationship that makes our kids want to turn to us to learn how to live healthy Christian lives as adults. 
the hard part about uh, teens and tweens is that you have to build, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong because you're the expert, but you have to build a brand new relationship with somebody who is who was very attached to you for many years and depended on your every word and was so glad to see you when you came home and suddenly you're staring at a completely different person and how do you build a discipleship relationship with someone who seems like a stranger suddenly? Yeah, no, thank you for saying that because, you know, we, so uh, many people who are familiar with our work know that, that a lot of our work is rooted in this idea of attachment theory, attachment parenting, and they tend to think that that just has to do with infants. Mm-hmm. But really, uh, attachment is a concept that goes through every age and stage, and and at every stage you have to reattach in some ways with the, with the child that you have. So attachment with an infant is very different from attachment with a kid in early childhood or uh, the, the grade school years or, you know, teens and tweens. So, but, but at every stage, it basically comes down to the idea that, that we, of using different approaches to convey to your child that, that I am the one that you can turn to, um, to to get the information and support you need to ad- address your concerns and, and, and lead a healthy life. So it's, it's more than lecturing, right? It's not, in fact, it doesn't involve lecturing at all. It's about giving your kids that kind of gut-level sense that mom and dad are the people that I can turn to to get the resources and the support and the answers I need to respond to the challenges that I'm facing. You know, so in infancy, that means that my parents respond to me when I'm crying, right? But when, when I'm a teenager, what that means is, you know, I, my parents are the people I can go to to kind of help me figure out how my faith can help me build healthy relationships and, and how I can find my place in the world and, and how I can use the gifts and talents that God's given me to make a positive difference in my environment. And, you know, and by having that discipleship relationship where we're aware of those big needs, those developmental needs that our kids have at every stage, we can put ourselves in place to, to respond to those uh, developmental challenges in ways that, 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 that make us credible to our kids, that make them want to turn to us for that advice instead of getting the message that they need to get that from, from other adults or the culture or media or peers. You know, and my experience has been this past year or two, I've, I've two of my, my two oldest children got married this past year, and my, ex- my experience is I'm, I'm facing the same thing again. I'm having now to rebuild a new, to build a new parenting relationship with married young adults. They're still young, they're in their early 20s, but... They now well, we suddenly. Are, we're in the same situation. I mean, I, I'm sure you've had. This, we actually planned six weddings uh, <laughs> for two kids. <laughs> for two kids in the course of a year. Yeah. Yes, we but, just but, did. Yeah, we, we just we had that kind of 2021. We had several yeah. weddings planned, but finally two. Yeah. They, they both came off so fabulous. We're very happy. But now suddenly I have two brand new people in my life, plus the in-laws, <laughs> that yeah. I have to re- have to build a new relationship with. And again, it, it, we have to reattach at every stage. And if we just sort of assume that, oh well, you know, I built this relationship with my kids when they were, you know, teens, or they should that should just carry over to adulthood, we're going to be seriously mm-hmm. surprised. Um, in fact, we, you mentioned that we had the new book, Parenting Your Teens and Tweens with Grace, and, and Parenting Your Kids with Grace, come out. That happened in the, in the early fall. Um, actually, actually, uh, late summer, um, we actually had another book come out in November called um, "Having Meaningful and Sometimes Difficult Conversations with Adult Sons and Daughters." Oh, I'm, uh, I'm ordering that right. I'm ordering that right now, Doctor Popchak. So, thank you. So, we we now have parenting books that cover everything from from infancy through young adulthood, um, and it is a very different relationship. So, in in the having meaningful and sometimes difficult conversations with adult sons and daughters book, we we do talk about how to kind of create healthy attachment with our adult kids 
you know, we're, we're, you know, obviously our adult children don't owe us obedience and they're not going to do everything we tell them to do. But how do we continue to maintain some kind of positive influence in their lives? How do we cultivate the kind of relationship that makes them open to our suggestions and, and willing to continue discussing important topics like faith and values and parenting and all the rest of it um, you know, when, when they're well on in, into their adulthood? Hmm. You know, my experience has been that they still want they still want a lot of advice. They still want a lot of input. My my Absolutely. my difficulty is I feel that I have to give it in a different way and I'm having yeah. trouble adjusting to that. That's right. That's right. Yeah, no, they they absolutely do still want it. But you 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 have to approach it you can't approach it in a telling them what to do. Exactly. Um or and you also you also can't approach it um interestingly enough, like even if you're even if you're not telling them what to do if one of the challenges that I've had right, as a parent is that I, I have the benefit of experience where I can see how certain things work out, right? So I want to save them from making the wrong choice by telling them, okay, if you do that, this is what's going to happen. And if you do that, this is mm-hmm. and, and where I got into the trouble is, is well, you know, how dare you, you know, predict the future kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. So you, you have to take this approach where you, you're not telling them what to do and you're also not going to tell them the outcome. You have to kind of walk them through the process where they can see it for themselves uh, because they're in the process of kind of learning to stand on their own two feet as adults. And, and if you, if you, if you tell them what's going to happen or you tell them what to do, the, the problem is that you end up um, really kind of making them feel crippled or making them feel squashed in some way. Well, Dr. Popchak, I'm sorry to say that the time has flown. I could talk to you all day. We could continue our public therapy session. <laughs> you've <laughs> well, done a pleasure. You've done me much good. Please tell our audience where they can buy your book and about your website and the Catholic uh, therapy. Sure. All of our books are available at catholiccounselors.com. That's catholiccounselors.com. And the books we were talking about in particular were the Parenting Your Kids with Grace, Parenting Your Teens and Tweens with Grace, and the brand newest book, Having Meaningful, Sometimes Difficult Conversations with Your Adult Sons and Daughters. And again, it's all at catholiccounselors.com, as well as information about the counseling practice. Well, fabulous. Thank you. Thank you. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us in this Sunday's Gospel, when we will once again join those in the Nazareth Synagogue after Jesus reveals himself to them and us as the Messiah. It's not a tranquil conversation. In fact, after the dialogues that took place before Pontius Pilate and on Calvary, it may be one of the most difficult colloquies in the Gospel. But it's important for us to enter into the drama because the rejection of Jesus by those in his hometown is not only a prelude to what he endured in the Passion, but also what can happen whenever we and others don't want to accept Jesus on his own terms, but try to box him into our own safe categories. This scene is a continuation of what began last week when Jesus, arriving on the synagogue in his hometown, was invited by the Hatsan, or the synagogue leader, to read a passage of God's word and to give a commentary. By this point, Jesus already had a reputation throughout Galilee for teaching with authority unlike any he had ever heard. He was becoming famous especially for the miracles he was working, like casting out demons and curing the sick and the paralyzed. Jesus unrolled the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, read one of the most famous passages referring to the Messiah for whom the Jews had long waited, and gave a one-sentence homily that Isaiah's words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, were being fulfilled live in their hearing. 
St. Mark and St. Luke both tell us that the listener's first reaction to Jesus' teaching was astonishment. They were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth and the wisdom that had been given to him, both of which were probably very much on display in the way he even read the words of Isaiah, that he, the word of the Father, had inspired seven centuries before. But that quickly changed once they began to reflect on what he said. First, Jesus was saying that he was the Messiah. That couldn't be, they thought, because they thought they knew him. They likely had pieces of furniture he made. They remembered him playing with themselves or their kids when he was younger. They didn't believe on the basis of scripture and experience that anything good, not to mention the Messiah, could come from Nazareth. Is this not Joseph's son, they asked. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, they derisively enunciated. Second, if the scripture passage that their longtime neighbor and local construction worker had read was being fulfilled in their hearing, and he had come to proclaim the gospel to the poor, liberty to captives, recovery of sight to the blind, freedom to the oppressed, then they naturally began to ask themselves whether he was saying they were poor, captive, blind, and oppressed. Rather than engaging their conscience, however, to see if what Jesus was saying might be true, rather than humbly asking, what should we do? St. Mark tells us that they began to ask him to put on a show there of healing, like they had heard he had done in the synagogue at Capernaum. Jesus not only didn't do miracles there, but St. Mark says he couldn't, except for the healing of a few sick persons, because of their lack of faith, which left Jesus stupefied and basically knocked the wind out of him. To try to convert them and provoke them to faith, Jesus described two pagans whose faith led to great miracles from the prophets Elijah and Elisha, but they refused to engage. Their doubts multiplied. And as St. Mark describes, they began to take offense at Jesus. They not only refused to believe in what he was saying, but they were affronted by it. Because if he were the Messiah, it would necessarily change everything, their relationship with him, and in fact, their whole lives. Jesus knew their thoughts, St. Luke tells us and said, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. That filled him with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which Nazareth was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. In a series of reactions that would later be recapitulated in Jerusalem, when the mobs passing by would cry out, Hosanna to the son of David, to crucify him, within the span of a few days. These good Nazarenes, people who went to the synagogues religiously on the Sabbath, went in just a few minutes from praising Jesus in amazement to doubts, to taking offense at him, to trying to kill him. In the beat of an eye, they went from praying in the synagogue to trying to murder the guest preacher. Not only would they not accept Jesus as a prophet by heeding his words and welcoming him as they would the God who sent him, but they, like preceding generations whom he elsewhere said killed the prophet and stoned those sent to it, would seek to kill him. In other cities, strangers who didn't know him growing up were willing to leave everything to follow him, were moved and converted by his preaching and were amazed by the miraculous power that his words contained, such that with faith they were bringing him all those who needed help. But among his own, he was rejected and deserving of death. We have to ask, how is this possible? How could people who were regulars at the synagogue and the temple, who seemed hungry for the word of God, who spoke highly of Jesus and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth, all of a sudden seek to kill him? Why wouldn't they just have ignored him? The reason is found in St. John's prologue. 
He came to his own, and his own people did not accept him. The light came into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. They didn't want a real Messiah, even or especially if he were a native son, because a real Messiah would necessarily change them. The real Messiah was a threat to their self-dominion, to their comfort zones, to their comfortable routines. They had come to the synagogue to fulfill their religious duties, not to have their lives changed, and change forever. In the final analysis, they preferred not to have scripture fulfilled in their hearing, not to hear the good news, not to be set free from their self-imposed prison, not to be cured of their spiritual blindness. They preferred to live in their darkness rather than be provoked then and there with urgency to come to the light. Because Jesus spoke and acted with an authority that didn't allow a simple refusal. Because his message couldn't stop reverberating in their synagogue, in their ears, in their conscience. The only way to eliminate the message was to eliminate the messenger. Pontius Pilate and the Sanhedrin would fulfill that rejection later. What happened in the synagogue of Nazareth is instructive for us as we prepare to go meet Jesus on Sunday. We are his own people, the equivalent of modern Nazarenes. Through baptism, we've become true members of his family, his spiritual brothers and sisters. Through the Eucharist, we've become, so to say, blood relatives. Many, perhaps most of us, have grown up with the Lord our whole life. We're literally familiar with him. As with other relatives, we have pictures of him at home, celebrate his birthday every December, and mark the most important moments of his life each spring. The question for us is whether we, like the majority of ancient inhabitants of Nazareth, allow that familiarity with Jesus actually to weaken rather than strengthen our faith. Do we allow our greater contact with Jesus to make us take him for granted or help us grow in love for him? When he says something that challenges us to leave our comfort zones, to convert, do we listen to and follow him as Messiah? Or do we marginalize him? And through continuing in a life of sin, do things that ultimately lead to what happened to him on Golgotha. When he comes to us hungry, thirsty, a stranger, naked, ill, or in prison, do we care for him or cast him aside? When he teaches us that whatever we do to the least of his brothers and sisters, we do to him, do we therefore care for him in the littlest of, our, of his brethren, those growing in the womb? Or do we look the other way when some want to celebrate their slaughter as an advance in human rights? When Jesus speaks to us about purity of heart, about the importance of marriage and God's plan from the beginning, is the indissolubility of one man and one woman. Do we order our lives to the truth, or do we prefer the Barabbas of the sexual revolution? When he teaches us about loving our enemies, praying for our persecutors, forgiving seventy times, seven times, seeking first his kingdom, picking up our cross daily and following him, do we strive to live by the light of those words, or do we ignore them? The biggest question of our life is whether we will welcome, embrace, and love Jesus as prophet, Messiah, Savior, the way, the truth, and the life, whether we'll ignore, reject, and ultimately, like those in Nazareth and later in Pilate's courtyard, seek to snuff him out. On the Christian Sabbath, the same Jesus who out of love came to his own in Nazareth comes to our parish churches, to us, who have not just become his hometown, but his temples. He comes for a consequential conversation, a life-changing encounter. He teaches us in sacred scripture, which is always fulfilled by him live in our hearing. He awaits our embracing him in faith and letting his word take flesh in us. He comes to be received by us, like Mary and Joseph of Nazareth welcomed him. Let us through their intercession pray for the grace to meet Jesus as he desires and deserves and have his word fulfilled not just in our hearing, but in our whole existence. God bless you. 
Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 